Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome to the Monday Night Against the Stream class. Anybody here for the first time for tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome back. Welcome anybody joining us on Zoom for the first time. I'd like to begin um, by asking you to talk to each other, to meet each, you know, in, in service of building community. One of the central Buddhist uh, practices is building community, uh, taking refuge in the Sangha, finding wise friendships, people to support you and for you to support on the path. Tonight, I'm going to talk about death. So uh, we'll uh, use death as a topic for these uh, small groups. Um, Buddhism talks a lot about death right in the first foundation of mindfulness, right after we're taught how to meditate on the breath and body and investigate the impermanent nature of the breath in the body and all sensation, then the instructions move to uh, reflecting and visualizing the truth of impermanence of our own bodies and of everybody, every body, that um, we're all living this temporary experience. And I thought about death tonight because a couple friends visiting from Oklahoma who are doing the year to live practice, Jeff Kamozi, who's my co-host and um, a, a Dharma teacher is leading a group in, in this practice where you spend 12 months investigating death and um, as though you had a year to live. So I thought about it for the people in the Sangha that are doing the year to live. And then also my friend, George, who's uh, both parents died in the last few months. and. And, you know, and anybody else in the room who's experiencing uh, death. Um, I'm not sure what I have to say about it, but I want to start by uh, asking you to get into small groups and introduce yourself, hopefully to some people you don't really know that well yet, rather than just talking to the people you already know. And the question is, the topic is death in this, what is your relationship like to death? Is it something that you think about, that you meditate on? Do you do the corpse meditations of Buddhism? Do you um, do the five reflections? There's these five Buddhist reflections uh, that are about sickness, aging, death, um, illness, and loss, and, 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 and karma. Karma is our only true possession from this teaching from the Buddha. I'm going to talk about all of that tonight, but before I do, and before we meditate, talk to each other a little bit. What's your relationship like with death? Total denial, not on your, you know, uh, radar at all, or something that you reflect on and think about and um, losses that you've experienced and what's your relationship like with death? So at home, I'll put you in the breakout groups in the room. Just find some people you don't know, talk to them well, about five minutes or so, a couple of minutes each. So as part of mindfulness, 
after the instructions are given on awareness of the breath and the body and the 32 parts of the body. In the first foundation, it says, and further, just as the meditator were looking at a corpse thrown on a charnel ground, one or two or three days dead, swollen, black and blue in color, full of corruption, so one regards one's own body. This body of mine also has this nature, has this destiny and cannot escape it. And further, just as the disciple were looking at a corpse thrown on a charnel ground, eaten by crows, hawks, or vultures, by dogs or jackals, or devoured by all kinds of worms, so one regards one's own body. This body of mine also has this nature, has this destiny and cannot escape it. And further, just as the meditator were looking at the corpse thrown on a charnel ground, a framework of bones, flesh hanging from it, bespattered with blood, held together by sinews. And further, a framework of bones, stripped of flesh, bespattered with blood, held together by sinews. And furthermore, a framework of bone without flesh or blood, but still held together by sinews. And then bones disconnected and scattered in all directions. Here a bone of the hand, there a bone of the foot. There a shin bone, there a thigh bone, there a pelvis, there a spine, there a skull. So one regards one's own body. This body of mine also has this nature, has this destiny and cannot escape it. And further, as if we were looking at bones lying in the charnel ground, bleached and resembling shells, Bones heaped together after the lapse of years, bones weathered and crumpled to dust. So one re regards one's own body. This body of mine also has this nature, has this destiny and cannot escape it. So I may do some of the um, corpse instructions in the meditation tonight, but I invite you to reflect and you know, let any sort of visualizations of decaying corpses enter your meditation and then reflect to yourself, uh, not exempt, that that's what happens. So these bodies that are very much alive, breathing, aware of, of life, in some ways mindfulness is checking in. Am I still alive? Yep, breathing in. Still alive? Yep, breathing out. Feeling sensation, feeling emotion, feeling, life, and then this reflection that we're not exempt from the end of life and the um, decay of the body and, and all of these different stages. So have fun in your meditation. <laughs> Find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed. Allow your eyes to be closed and your tension to release, softening. Bringing awareness to life in the body. Each breath, each heartbeat. Each moment of awareness of sound, smell, taste.
trying to bring an attitude of kindness, of acceptance, friendliness to your own mind and heart and body, to your experience. As we reflect on death, as we turn towards the truth of impermanence, tending to whatever emotions get stirred up, our attachments, our fears. You can spend the first few minutes just being present in the body, investigating life. The impermanent nature of each breath.
You can keep it simple and just practice mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of life in the body. You can add these reflections on the corpse in the many stages of decay. You can reflect on death, your relationship to <coughs> your own impermanence, aging, sickness, <coughs> death. how much suffering we experience because of the grief in this impermanent realm where our loved ones die.
last couple of minutes reflecting on the five reflections that I mentioned earlier saying to yourself I'm of the nature to age not exempt from aging breathe that in and reflect on the nature of this physical form, our bodies, to age, to decay. I am subject to sickness illnesses, diseases, injuries. I'm not exempt from sickness. And I am of the nature to die. This body is impermanent. This lifetime, this incarnation is temporary. I'm not exempt from death. reflecting on in this world of impermanence that everything that we cling to that we hold dear that we love we will be separated from all of the people that we care about all of the things, the experiences, the places. And the last one, the final contemplation, reflection is about our karma, our actions, how we respond to what's happening in our lives and in the world. And it's the Buddhist understanding that our only true possession, the only thing that we actually 
own that we take with us is our karma. We are born of our karma. We are related to our karma. We are the owners of how we act. In the time of the Buddha and the suttas, the historical teachings of, of the Buddha, there's a story, a teaching story about um, a woman whose child has died and like an infant has died and she's crazed with grief out of her mind with the grief of the her dead baby and she uh, and the buddha is nearby and she hears that there's this enlightened being nearby and um, she thinks in her grief crazed mind state that maybe this enlightened being can bring my child back to life you know, if you're enlightened, you should have magical powers and be able to bring my child back to life. And so she finds the Buddha and she comes with her, the corpse of her child to the Buddha. Maybe waits in line or I don't know how, but, you know, finally kind of gets, gets to t speak with the Buddha and, and, um, and says, please bring my child back to life. I, so um, I don't know what to do. And the Buddha says, I can't. I don't have that kind of power. That's my, my awakening has taught me how to uh, end suffering in my own life. 
through compassion, through non-attachment, through wisdom, through understanding. Um, and that's what I teach. I teach how to end suffering, but I can't, uh, I don't have those sort of ma magical powers. And she says, you know, basically there's this back and forth, but basically says, I don't believe you. You're an enlightened being. You have to be able to bring my child back to life. And as the story goes that finally the Buddha says, okay, look, go into town, go to the, the village that we're nearby or the, the town that we're nearby. And if you can find a home that hasn't known death um, and ask them for a mustard seed. And if you can find a, a mustard seed from a home in this town that has not known death, uh, bring it back to me and then I'll bring your child back to life. And sends her out to, and you know, in her state, she goes door to door and knocks on the door and says, you know, has anybody died in your family? And, you know, of course they say, yep, grandma and grandpa or great grandma and great grandpa, or, or we've lost children or we've lost. And so she goes to the next home and, you know, you see where it's going. <laughs> of course, every single home, every single family knows death. There's not a family that doesn't know death now. Sometimes, you know, I don't know, maybe there might be even people in the community whose parents are still alive and grandparents are still alive. You know, the older we get, the more unlikely that is. Um, but certainly great grandparents or extended family, there's, there's not a family that doesn't know death. So finally she comes back to the Buddha and says, I get it. Every, you know, death is, is part of everyone's experience, not just mine. Um, I don't know that this is a great example. It's one of the teachings on death that, that is traditional in Buddhism. Uh, the loss of a child does seem to be probably the most traumatic and, and um, devastating experience somebody could have to lose a child. It is said that one of the um, aspects of the first noble truth, dukkha, we call it dukkha, we often translate the first noble truth as suffering. And it says um, uh, sickness, uh, aging, death, grief, being separated from that which we love, being met with experiences that we don't love is all part of the definition of the noble truth of suffering. It's always been a little confusing to me of like, well, why is grief suffering? Like on some level, obvious, like, but maybe because of how I was raised um, around parents who were doing a lot of work in death and dying. And uh, I've always thought of grief, grief as a healthy emotion and not, a, not necessarily suffering. Seems like uh, grief is, is a natural and, and healthy um, experience of impermanence and loss and death rather than it's suffering. And it, you know, it's unpleasant. Um, and I, I tend to buy into the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross 
five stages of grief, you know, that that's a, a natural process that we go through with the denial and the bargaining and the anger and the coming around to acceptance and then going back into the denial and the anger and the missing one, bargaining, acceptance, and that's only four. I mean, we'll just go with four stages. <laughs> Forget what the fifth one is, but... Um, The only way, so, because what's being said in Buddhism is that actually we can come to a place of such acceptance, such wisdom, such, you know, non-attachment that we don't suffer anymore in this lifetime. I'm not, personally, I'm not sold on the idea that enlightenment would mean that you don't grieve. I would think that even very enlightened beings would have a sense of sadness and a sense of loss and a sense of, I know like to me, it feels like there's two different levels of grief around death. There's natural healthy grief, which I would think that even an enlightened being would experience a natural healthy sense of loss and, and some grief around it even with non-attachment still a sort of like sadness you don't have to be attached to feel sad to feel some grief my sense and then of course when we are attached when we're very attached there's a level of grief that i would call neurotic grief not healthy normal but this sort of extra level of completely rejecting impermanence, not accepting loss and turning it into a, a, a quite a quite a lot of a suffering. I have a scriptural uh, sutta based uh, you know example that um, supports my argument. <laughs> You know, those of you who have been studying Buddhism know that us Buddhist teachers are the worst because we'll just cherry pick Buddhism to make our point, right? So I'm sure that some other Buddhist teacher could be like, no, no, zero grief and here's why. <laughs> but I believe in grief, so I'm going to say here's why, <laughs> to be transparent about. It's uh, towards the end of the Buddha's life. He had two best friends, uh, Sariputta and Moggallana. And they were considered to be enlightened beings and had been with him for like close to 40 years as these enlightened, his like, you know, closest, their monks, closest friends and, and uh, kind of number two and number three in wisdom. And, and they both died before he did. And there's a quote that's a, attributed to the Buddha, he said, you know, without uh, my homies here, it's, it feels, the, the room feels empty. He said, the assembly feels like it's uh, missing something. It doesn't feel the same without the, you know, these, my loved friends in the room. And it feels like he's pointing towards, I'm an enlightened being, and I have grief. I, I've, I feel the loss. I've, I, I miss the presence, even though uh, one of the ways that I've heard that translated too is that he says, 
um, it's as though it feels as though the uh, sun has been extinguished from the earth. That sunshine of presence, of awareness, of the light of love and connection and friendship. I feel it's I feel its absence. So my opinion is that uh, the only way that we end grief from this Buddhist perspective um, is by getting fully enlightened and not taking rebirth. That as long as we have incarnated, even if we get free, grief goes with the package. But it's much different to have a, a non-attached sadness about loss than to have a very attached suffering about loss. And of course, that it opens up the um, conversation that I'm not so interested in having tonight, but it's kind of hard to talk about death without it, uh, which is the Buddha's teaching was that we're in a, a cycle of um, uh, rebirth and that it's not just this one lifetime. And for us, Western scientific, rational, uh, you know, materialists, it's you know not so easy for us to think about um, that there's something like like the fifth reflection in the that there's something that continues beyond the body that there is a karmic momentum that would be reborn and that this this isn't just uh, it's not YOLO <laughs> it's not you only live once it's that actually we're in a cycle of uh, of um, living over and over. And so death is actually not the end of our karma, unless we have ended our karma, <laughs> um, which means that we've freed ourselves from all forms of attachment and aversion and self-centeredness. And then that's the you know, definition of the, the Buddha or an arahant, an enlightened being, no more negative karma to take birth. And so then that's nirvana. My sense of the um, practicalness of reflecting on death and the way that I encourage us to, to think about it and look, look at it and what I, my, my sense of why it's a central teaching in Buddhism, that it's not so much about rebirth and it's not so much about um, even enlightenment that it's about the preciousness and the the impermanence and the preciousness of the life that we're living reflect on death regularly and you'll be more uh present for your life that you're living so easy to take life for granted and to be in denial about death and to you know put off important work, put off important healing work or awakening or, um, and to think, oh, I'll get to it later. I'll meditate later. I'll have time for meditation retreats or whatever later. But when we're really reflecting on death a lot, there becomes a more of a, um, an importance and a um, priority to see clearly now, because we don't know how much time we have. We, know, we all know we're gonna die. We just don't know when. 
this year to live practice that Ryan and Harlan and Jeff and some other people, I think, I don't know who else is here tonight, Cato and Dave and a bunch of people in the community are, I think they're already three months in, almost three months into this 12 month year to live practice. It's a practice I've done a bunch of times. Uh, other people in the community have. It's, it's so interesting to say, I'm going to take this whole year and turn towards death. And one of the parts of that practice that I really appreciated, especially the first time I did it, because there's this emphasis on like, if we know we're going to die, we don't know when, when but if we pretend like it's going to be in this next year, what do I need to do what karma do I need to clean up? What amends do I need to make? What do I need to express so that I could die with a fairly clean conscience? What my father who created this book called, created this practice, he called it finishing business. Doing this inventory and so that you could actually die without owing for, you know, amends to anybody. And the part that I really uh, appreciated about the year to live practice, because I'd already been, I think over 10 years in recovery when I did it. And so I had put a lot of 12 step recovery. They put a lot of emphasis on making amends when you've caused harm. And so I'd already done that actually, by the time I'd done the year to live, I'd finished my ninth step. I'd made all of the amends and that I needed to make, or that I was aware of needing to make at the time. <laughs> But he put this other focus on it, which, which was so useful and uh, offer it to you for your reflection, which was um, not just amends, but gratitude. If you died soon, if you're going to die soon, who do you owe a debt of gratitude to that you haven't expressed maybe ever or recently? Because it's not just, hey, forgive me, it's thank you all of the, making sure that all of the people in our lives know, I love you, I appreciate you, thank you for the kindness, for the support, the generosity, the whatever it was. And uh, I don't wanna die without expressing that. I think that's one of a, a great function on, of death, of, the, um, of looking at death, meditating on death, not just to be morbid and you know, watching the, jackals eat your corpse i mean it's cool <laughs> but it's not just to be like oh let's be gross let's face the reality so that we actually live our lives in a more skillful way saying what needs to be said expressing what needs to be expressed rather than postponing it My friend Ward Robinson, who subs my class sometimes, teaches on Friday nights. Um, he's got a tattoo right on his arm, right? He doesn't have a ton of tattoos, but he's got this one tattoo right on his arm, right where you can see it. And it says, I may die today. And he just sees it every day. Such a cool idea. Just like reminding, I may die today. Could be, you know, and one day that's going to be true. But yep, that's the day I died today. Woke up dead. <laughs> that was it. 
the more we reflect on death and impermanence and the um, not knowing how much time we have and how important and and uh, and actually living as though we may die today. In my in my father's book, uh, Who Dies, he wrote this section that I always remember where he said, you know, if we can really turn towards death and really embrace the reality of impermanence, then, um, you know, he said, as though, uh, rather than waiting for anything, as though your loved ones are already dead, as though your children are, are already, you know, dead rather than waiting, uh, you know, seeing our, our friends and our family and our children as impermanent subjects to death. He said, then we wouldn't let a day go by without expressing love and appreciation. And, and then actually death leads to being more loving. Now, maybe for some people it feels, oh, this is so fucking depressing and I don't wanna talk about it. Um, but the, I think the intention is about being more alive. We look at death to be more alive, to be more awake, to be more loving and patient and tolerant and, uh, and wise with each other. Oh, somebody put in the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So I don't know. I don't. I don't feel that. I don't feel like I have that much more. I want to open to questions, comments, conversation about death. What comes up for you? What questions do you have about it? What um, is your experience, or uh, how does Buddhism support? Is what I'm saying make sense to you? Any anything? Let's just open it up for dialogue, please. So I had um, my mother died when I was pretty young. And that was so traumatizing. And so one thing that's been coming up a lot is that kind of trauma and how as a, as a 16, 17 year old kid, that kind of framed death in such a negative way. And it was so traumatic and you know carried so much kind of pain. Yeah. Is there a way that you would think to reframe some of that or to how would I learn to improve my relationship with death and kind of take some of the, the kind of pain and sting out of it? And try to rephrase it briefly for the people at home. Could, could you hear him at home or not really? Not really. He's talking about how his uh, mother died when he was young teenager. And um, how that grief, that loss of a parent has, has left a kind of sting around death and how could the Dharma, how could, what, what practices might help um, resolve or reframe, yeah, reframe. reframe it. Have you done much of the death meditations? Yeah. So, I mean, that would, you know, really kind of meditating on death, doing the, looking at your own 
impermanence and, and death might say, you know, help change that a little bit. We live in this culture of such denial about death and, and, and death is always considered so wrong rather than natural. And Buddhism helps us kind of reframe it as a natural process rather than wrong or like in the medical, it's like we lost them, it's a failure. Every time somebody dies, it's bad and wrong rather than natural. And so maybe meditating on it, uh, on the kind of the five daily reflections that we did at the end, maybe even doing some of the corpse meditation, but just bringing it in more into awareness. And as you already are quite aware, I'm like, oh, I have some, because of how painful that was to lose a parent at a young age and, and you know, being a teenager is hard enough, you know, conflating that sort of like, and now I'm a motherless teenager, not just, you know, a teenage drug addict. I'm a motherless teenage drug addict. It's like good reason to smoke some crack. But tending to that and kind of unpacking the um, difficulties that you maybe were already in, and then the grief and the uh, and that humility of like, and I didn't know how to meet it with compassion. I was in so much pain, and I didn't know how to meet it with compassion, and I didn't understand the nature of impermanence and death, and that this wasn't. I don't know if you if this happened to you. Um, but I have often felt when friends die, uh, a sense of abandonment. And I have found a lot of um, use in sending forgiveness to people that have died. If I forgive you, you know, whether it's totally self-centered, it's pretty self-centered to be like, you abandoned me by dying. But that's how it lands in my nervous system as I feel abandoned by it. Uh, especially when it's been suicides and stuff like that. So, um, so forgiveness practice might, you know, kind of in, in death and turning towards it and normalizing it. And as you, I'm sure you're already doing in your recovery and your Dharma practice, more and more compassion for that confused kid, you know, that's still here on some level. Um, and forgiveness towards, in, sometimes we, we think of, usually we do forgiveness towards people or we forgive ourselves or we ask for forgiveness when we've caused harm. Sometimes it's, it's very good and interesting to um, see, actually I resent impermanence. I resent death. And what if I do forgiveness practice towards death? as an institution <laughs> towards impermanence as a, you know, cause I actually am where we all understand impermanence, but we're not so good. We're not wired to really accept it. And so we, we resent the fact that things change. And, and so doing, I forgive you impermanence. I forgive you death and train your mind in that way and your heart in that way, see what happens. Couple hands at home. Nate, go ahead. Hey, what up, Noah? What up, Sangha? 
Um, so my, I'm going to try to articulate it and do it quickly so everyone can hear me. But for the five remembrances, it's very much like I am this, I am that. Um, how do we square that with like not self? Is that language already kind of baked in somewhere in the original poly or and just not translated? Uh, or is it just kind of implied somewhere in 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 there that like this is all tied to ego? Could you hear everybody in the room hear it? My sense is that we have to speak about ourselves in the first person or it gets weird. Wisdom knows that when I say, when I say I am subject to sickness, aging and death, uh, that I will be separated from all of the things that I cling to and love and that my only true possession is karma, my karma. There's a, a wisdom and an understanding that uh, on the relative level, what we're talking about is this body, which is not who I am. I am, you know, this body will, so you could reframe it and say this body that I'm aware of that the consciousness is inhabiting uh, this permanent, this impermanent process of consciousness and memory and sensation is impermanent, you know. Um, but I heard uh, one of my teachers, Ajahn Amaro, gave a, gave a great talk about this one time because of this question. It's such a, a good and normal question. Um, yeah, if we're not self, then why are we saying I am? So it's the relative. On the relative, I am this body. Ultimately, I know this body is impermanent. It's not uh, my true refuge. And so it's one of those practices that we approach using that um, dualistic relative language. And it's very helpful. And a lot of the Dharma is helpful. You know, it's the same as, you know, may I be happy in loving kindness or I forgive you. We use that language um, because it's very useful on, on, on one level. And then the more we investigate, well, who am I and what am I? And then we start to see like, uh, there's not really a solid separate continuous self here, but we're still going to relate to ourselves and each other uh, in the first person, hopefully. We won't start talking about ourselves in the third person. Um, so it's just one of those semantics that we have to use that language, but we don't have to believe it. I, I, I mean, I don't know if this, it's like everything else that we identify with as like, well, I am, you know, our gender or our age or our race or our, it's all true on a relative level. And then there's an ultimate level that there's a, a process unfolding here that is genderless and raceless and ageless and, you know, not those things. But on the relative level, that's how we walk through the world. I hope that makes some sense to you, Nate. It does. And it was super helpful and fun. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask a question. I don't know if I want the answer because it might mean that I'm attached to something that I shouldn't be. But so I've had a lot of losses in my life, and mostly from drug addiction 
suffer from murder or other violence. But every single time I've had a clear message that that person is leaving, even if they're not with me, like at the moment that it happens. My brother was murdered, he woke his aunt up from sleep and said, go get my sister. I mean, I've been like when an aunt passed and I didn't, wasn't aware of it, I felt her presence like leave the earth. But at the same time, when Teddy died, I felt in the wind, like his, his energy, the wind, the trees, whatever you serve it. But I, I don't know if that reconciles with Buddhism, because if you're talking about reincarnation, like how is it possible that like you get those kind of like messages? And is there ever a teaching from Buddha about when there might possibly be a time when the reincarnation doesn't happen right away because maybe the person had unresolved issues or they needed to stay there for a message. I, I mean, I don't know what the teaching is on that. And then like, because in Christianity, you're like, that's that's the work of the devil. Like no such thing ever happens. And then like, I celebrate Dia de los Muertos every year. And it's like the most beautiful thing to celebrate because you are just celebrating the people that have died no matter how far back it is. And it's just, I find it probably to be my favorite holiday, like in the whole year, just because it's like that energy and that love, it's, it's not gone, you know, and so like to, every year to revisit it and just feel all that love that you have for those people that are passed. But I'd like to know, like, what does the Buddha teach about whether or not that kind of message from, you know, after they've passed is even possible, or does it just need to be attached to the idea that it did I don't really know. I can't think of any um, early Buddhist teachings where ghosts or um, the sort of messages are addressed. Jason, can you think of any? Yeah, I do. Uh, like the like around the message teaching, you know, the devas and all the negative. I know that it and this is interesting too, like not everything is addressed. You know, there's that famous thing where the Buddha says, you know, I I only teach like what causes human suffering and what will alleviate human suffering. That's all. I don't teach cosmological or you know spirits spiritual um so some of this stuff there's a, a famous you know where, where he's in the forest with a bunch of monks and picks up a handful of leaves and and he says um what's more all the leaves in the forest are the leaves in my hand and they say well obviously more more leaves in the forest and he says you know uh wisdom you know is like the forest but the teachings are just these handful of leaves. I'm just teaching mindfulness and non-attachment and compassion. And I'm not teaching, you know, astrology or cosmology or spirituality, you know, some of the spirit stuff. He's like, this is the way that I think of it is like, this is straightforward humanist psychology. How do we not suffer about living in this world of impermanence? Some of the other stuff, it's just not addressed. So I don't know, like, I, I'm just happy to land and like, I don't know. I've had some of those experiences too. And so many people have had those experiences. 
how much meaning we should assign to them. I don't know about that either. You know, I'm quite open to like, oh, my mind really created that maybe. I'm also open to like, actually, maybe that really was a visitation. I don't know. So just, you know, accept your experience. But one of the great things that we're asked to do is investigate and bring, bring some skepticism and, 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 and look at like, how much am I assigning meaning to things? Right, because you hear those stories of like, and then a bird came and I, it was grandma for sure. <laughs> grandma liked birds and I saw a bird, you know, and it's like maybe, or maybe you're just assigning, you know, maybe it was actually was randomly just a bird. Um, so I don't know, not, not, not fully addressed in that way that I'm aware of. Philip, go ahead. So uh, talking about the year to live book, one of the things that really resonated that was said in there was that most people die the way they lived and thinking about like, like what I want the experience of being around, of around my death to be. And, you know, I've used the, the five reflections to meditate on and I've used the I'm of a nature to die to kind of like look at like different scenarios of how I could die and like trying to imagine the feeling of taking the last breath and, doing that feeling a lot more acceptance around it and like a lot less, you know, resistance to it. Yeah. Could you catch that? That was my, one of my father's perspectives was, and he did all of this, you know, 40 years or 50 years of working with terminally ill people and being at the deathbed. And he said, you know, what I've directly experienced is that it seems like uh, on our deathbed, it's often, he said, occasionally there's like a, a conversion where the really grumpy person becomes kind. But mostly if you've been this sort of like unhappy person, that's you die miserably. And if you've been a sort of generally like happy person, you kind of die kind of, you know, somewhat in acceptance of like, yeah, you know, that we die the way that we live. And, you know, what we're all trying to do is change the way that we live, become kinder and more loving and more compassionate. And that will probably serve us on our deathbed. Um, that all of this is preparation in some way or another. Please. Oh, sorry, this is Bryce. Um, so here kind of about death, also about non-attachment. Um, talk a lot about craving and, and the unhealthy attachment to things that we love. Um, I just, I, I guess I, I uh, read something Thich wrote about like watering the so seeds of joy and happiness and those things can help sustain you. And just like in the perspective of life and like meaning, having meaning in your life and the inherent truth that like we do have an impact on the people around us. We do hold meaning for other people. So I guess, and I guess I just had this thought after you were talking about that, like is karma only negative or is it, is it also something positive? And like, is, are there any teachings about, um, you know, from the Buddha himself about joy and meaning and, you know, I guess, yeah, like right, right livelihood and, yeah, just any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, 
karma is not only negative and we we have a tendency in our, the way that it's kind of come into our culture is like to talk about like that's your karma like it's always negative rather than uh actually everything good that we do has a karmic momentum every karma is the you know kind of classified as positive or negative wholesome or unwholesome and so every moment of kindness and generosity and honesty and even just mindfulness is all positive karmic momentum that we're building and then every moment of dishonesty and um you know all of the negative tendencies that we do are, you know, create a momentum for us. So both positive and negative. And so even that fifth reflection where it talks about my only true possession is my karma, that could be really fucking good news. If you live a life of kindness and generosity and service and, and love, you'd be like, that's what I own. I don't get to get keep my car. I don't get to keep my friends and family but I get to keep, I own the loving heart that I've developed through my, my Dharma practice, through my life. That's mine. That positive karma is who I am, is what I am, is what I am. It's, it, it's something like I'm born of my karma. I'm related to my karma. It's my only true possession. So in that way, it's this very empowering, like you're saying, the more we like Thich Nhat Hanh, like, you know, the, the planting the seed of kindness, of honesty, of joy, of love, and watering it over and over, it flourishes in our minds, in our hearts. We become an honest person, a loving person, a kind person. It's actually who we become. Hope that's helpful. We'll leave it there for tonight. You're all going to die. <laughs> it is certain. The time of death is uncertain. So quit fucking around. Yeah, pretty good, right? That was my best impression. A few announcements. Um, First of all, classes done by donation, please make a donation um, if you can uh, online, it's in the chat. You can, there's a link to the, to the donations here. Sebastian will be at the front desk. Uh, suggested donation is 20 to $25 for drop-in. If you can afford it, please, uh, please be generous. Um, if you need to donate less, whatever is appropriate to your financial situation, give whatever feels uh, appropriate to you. Please consider becoming a monthly supporter of Against the Stream where you just say, hey, I wanna give. I think if you look at the monthly supporter thing, there's 25, 50 or $108 a month to just monthly come to support the center. Please consider that if you can. Upcoming Against the Stream events um, is a three-day silent meditation retreat at the end of May, about a month from now. The annual Memorial Day retreat, I think this is maybe the 17th annual Memorial Day Against the Stream retreat, something like that. I've been teaching it for a long time, every Memorial Day. So uh, that's open for registration. 
Um, and there's some partial scholarships you can come for as little as $300. But if you can afford it, don't take the scholarship. You don't have to apply for the scholarship or anything. You can just register for it. But if you can afford it, we actually lose money when you come for 300 bucks. It costs us like closer to $500 to host you at the retreat. We're just trying to make it so that people that don't have money can come. So if you can afford it, pay the full registration fee, come to the retreat. But if you really want to come sit and you don't have that much money, take a scholarship if that's true for you. Um, and come sit with us three days. It's, it's a, a great retreat, good opportunity to deepen your practice. And you know, you might die. So probably best to do it this year instead of putting it off. Then um, in the fall, I'm going to do a seven day retreat up and both of these are in Big Bear in the mountains a couple hours from here. Um, there'll be a seven day retreat. And then in November, I'm doing an against the stream, the first ever against the stream Thailand pilgrimage, where we're going to go and visit some <laughs> monasteries and do some retreat time and uh, get tattoos, you know, all of the important things to do in Thailand. So um, that's open for registration. It's November 10th through 20th, and there is limited space for that. So if you're planning to come, start looking at plane tickets and register and, and make the time to come for this. Uh, it's only, I'm only going to guide the group for 10 days, but if you're going to go stay longer, go earlier, stay after, if you have the time in your schedule um to spend some time it's a good time of year uh, winter fall to be in thailand so um hope some of you join us what i forget sebastian yeah if you want to be if you're not on our mailing list if you sign up on the front desk we'll add you to the against the stream mailing list so you can hear about stuff uh, we post regularly on social media, Instagram and Facebook about like if I'm teaching or not teaching or upcoming events. So you can follow our social medias too. Against the stream meditation. Uh, I think that that's. Yeah, don't forget to buy some new. We've got a new refuge recovery sweatshirt here and online and uh, some there's books, all of that stuff that helps support the center too. So thank you for thank you for that in advance. Many goodness that comes from our practice and discussion of the Buddha's Dharma. We shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.